A brand new film has been made by Bill Munch called The Artist and the Astronaut about the unlikely love story between artist Pat Music and Skylab astronaut Jerry Carr. Extremely relevant because this week marks the 50th anniversary of the final crewed Skylab mission for which Jerry was the commander. We love hearing from you with your thoughts on what we're doing. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash Space and Things. But right now, it's time for episode 169 of the Space and Things Podcast. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Charles. And welcome to episode 169 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily? You were in Houston this weekend, right? I was. I was just taking a uh, little tour and stuff like that and just was uh, hanging out with some buddies and stuff like that. I I did see uh, (laughs) the Houston uh, Galaxy Lights. They have something similar (laughs) in Huntsville. And uh, (laughs) I saw Bruce McChristmas. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very good. I saw Bruce from Christmas. He was in, they put him in lights. I was like, wow, yeah. that's so nice. Hey, Bruce. I'm sure Bruce yeah. the third is listening. So anyway, yeah, I thought that was funny. They also had Buzz and uh, I don't know, some other, I don't think they were identifiable. They were just guys in spacesuits or maybe women in spacesuits. I don't know. So it was pretty cool. From the photo you sent me, it looks like exactly the same as last year. That's likely. I've never seen it before. It was pretty neat. You know, they were just playing sort of funky music and there was like a light show and stuff. It was cute. It was cute. So I enjoyed it. I'd never seen it before and it's neat. I enjoyed walking through it. Like I said, I saw Bruce McChristmas. That made my whole year. I was like, yes. (laughs) I have Bruce McKeechain on my keychain as well at home. Bruce McKeechain. I love that. I do. His family's like, why, 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 why? I have Bruce McMagnet on my fridge. Does does that count? McMagnet, yeah. (laughs) Anyway. He's everywhere. I want to revisit a little moan that I had last year and see if if this is still relevant. Last year, if you remember, I was at Space Center Houston for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17, the same time the light show was on. And the lights got loads of attention and zero for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17. You were there for... The 50th anniversary of the final Skylab mission, and they've got their wonderful Skylab yes. display there. Was there anything about the, the 50th anniversary around? No, there was not. Okay, there right. was there was nothing. <sighs> I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> to my knowledge, they had nothing there. I saw nothing. I mean, they have the the Skylab there. You know, the the big Skylab that's on its side and stuff. So, the, yeah, that's a missed opportunity. I won't get too into that because I could. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah we, we, we kind of, I, I mean, I covered that to death. We had a whole episode on what makes a good good space museum as a result of my feelings on that last year. Uh, so people yeah. can go and listen to that. To that. But, you know, uh, they, they should be doing better there, in my opinion. Anyway. Agreed. Shall yeah. we move oh, I agree. on? Let's move on. Yeah. So this week we interviewed Bill Munch. 
uh, the creator of a brand new film called The Artist and the Astronaut. Right, caveat here. Before Emily talks about the movie, neither of us are 100% sure we're pronouncing that correctly. So, Bill, we spent 45 minutes with you a couple of weeks ago and we foolishly forgot to ask. So if we've got your name wrong, Bill, we're really sorry, but we think it's Munch. And if it's not, let us know and we can put some egg on it. More egg on our faces for bad pronunciation. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I just want to say, uh, Dave did make me pronounce Tanagashima once and I destroyed (laughs) it. So the first time I, I think I had a nervous breakdown so that I remember, I remember that vividly. I don't know why. I'm sorry. Oh my God. uh, Todd Oliver always says that, uh, this podcast really is all about mispronunciation of names. So, um, in my opinion, Bill, if we've messed it up, it's for the, it's for the brand. It's all for the brand. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be doing it all wrong. Yeah, we're on, we're being on brand. Yeah, yeah. but we apologize as well. <laughs> but we do apologize as well, yes. So, the artist and the astronaut tells the unlikely story between the artist Pat Music, a civil rights activist, and the Apollo astronaut Jerry Carr as they participate in some of the most historic events in human history. This film is filled with never-before-seen footage of the early space pioneers and features interviews with key figures from that era. It chronicles Pat and Jerry's vastly different paths as they traverse uncertain times, eventually coming together to render some of America's most enduring art. The Artist and the Astronaut is an uplifting love story proving that curiosity, perseverance, and empathy for others can be powerful agents of change. Of course, the timing of us talking about this movie is very relevant as we've just started, as we mentioned earlier, the 50th anniversary of the Skylab 4 mission, which launched on November 16th, 1973. And of course, Jerry Carr was the commander of that mission. Now, we're going to be covering this anniversary over the next few months. The mission lasted 84 days, so we've got plenty of time. And as listeners know, we do love Skylab. Anyway, uh, for now, let's take a look at this new documentary. Where space cracks on. Hello, Bill, and thank you very much for joining us today. So on Space and Things, we like a good uh, scene-setting question. So what were you up to before making The Artist and the Astronaut, and how did you become aware of the story of Pat Music and Jerry Carr? Well, I I was uh, an educator for 33 years um, in the Manchester area, and I was, uh, at the time, I was teaching a course halfway through my career, a course called Space and Time about space exploration, the history of space exploration. At that time, around 2007, Jerry Carr and Pat Music moved to Manchester, Vermont. When they arrived, everybody said, oh, you've got to meet the teacher who teaches about space. And everybody said to me, you have to meet the new astronaut who came to town. And that began uh, a friendship that went on for years long before I decided to do the documentary. So the short answer is I taught English, I taught AP psychology, I taught a course on space and time, foundations of education, and cinema, and I needed all of those to put together this documentary. I love the idea of there being somewhere teaching about spaceflight history. How come that isn't more, more common? And how did you get into that? Because I'm sure plenty of our listeners would think I could do that. Uh, so that is a a great question. I was asked after teaching uh, English for senior English, more the existential 
authors of the time there, just like really getting into what does it mean to be a senior, uh, they said, do you want to do a uh, an elective? And I knew right away it, w- it was about space exploration. And it was about, it, it's what Emily does every day online, and that is create excitement. So I began with Jules Verne, and then we went to the right stuff. And then we go to Andy Chaikin's book, A Man on the Moon. Then mm-hmm. we go to Carl Sagan. And the idea being making it a survey course and not getting too bogged down in math or in uh, geeky stuff, but getting the excitement of what it's like in space. So we literally went from uh, science fiction to actually going to the moon and then moving out at the last few months of the of the course is looking uh, into the future and deep space and what we understand through uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and and Carl Sagan. And the kids love it. They're so interested in what's going on when they are given the chance to read about it. That's really awesome. It's a good thing. So what's interesting about The Artist and the Astronaut, and I've seen the film and it's wonderful. I'm a little biased, but it's awesome. So The Artist and the Astronaut touches on many themes that affected mid-60s America, such as the civil rights movement, which is juxtaposed with what happened during the space race. Now, as one does, I've talked to a few of the Apollo astronauts and they've discussed, you know, they they felt kind of isolated from the social upheavals of the decade because simply they were just so busy trying to get to the moon. So how does the movie juxtapose might seem to some some really diverse, unrelated themes? Yeah, well, a lot of the astronauts didn't. They were isolated, Apollo astronauts especially, uh, you know, really. Uh, were isolated and it and it and it affected their families and we cover that in the uh, in the film as well and and that's not a secret. That said, people are all different, so everyone had different experiences when they went into space. But for Jerry Carr, all of those issues started to come to him after they had happened, and an understanding of of the importance of coming together between the sexes, between the races, dealing with unresolved issues with the Native Americans, sustainability, all of those things that Pat learned on the ground in the 60s that we were fighting out at the time. Jerry, he was profoundly affected. Uh, Jeff Carr said that his dad's spacewalk on Christmas of 1973 was the thing that really changed Jerry politically and socially, and it really moved him from where he started as a cold warrior to someone who is a real forward thinker. So I don't think they're separate. I I think like anything, when you're educating people and when you're going through life, you can never um, connect the dots going forward. You connect them going backwards. And there are times when we know more about history than the people who lived through it, because now we have it under context. So in a way, Jerry, looking back, Pat was way ahead of her time and understood the moments as they were going on and actually talked about that. Uh, But for the rest of us, it takes events to happen. And we look back and say, oh my God, I get it now. I understand it. And we do that when our parents give us information (laughs) until we get older and go, I get it now. So I don't think it's juxtaposed. I think that they were happening at the same time and they were digested at different times. So the union of a socially conscious artist such as Pat Music, I mean, she was very involved in kind of social justice in the 1960s and a fighter jock astronaut might seem very unlikely. But the 
the film really shows how this union worked and, and benefited both music and car, not just romantically. You know, it wasn't that they got married, but also intellectually. You know, it. You see, Jerry changed a lot. So, what kind of things does the movie show that kind of illuminate this? We've we've touched a little bit on it. First of all, the movie is entertaining, right? And I I, I just <laughs> want to say that I had a uh, a picture of a glass of wine to remind me that people are going to take time, 90 minutes out of their life, and they need to be entertained. This wasn't going to be something that just was a high school movie that gave them information. That was one of the things that was really important to me. And as I was putting it together, I started to realize that it also relates to high school in that STEM or STEAM is critical right now in teaching, we understand that people need engineering and art, and they cannot exist separately. They need to exist together. If you have just engineers in the room, you don't have the people that think outside the box and, and dream of these things that the engineers can make. And if we just have the artists dreaming and thinking about it, uh, then that's not going to get done either. So it's something that I wanted my students to understand that you need all this a group. I, I believe life is a team sport. And when you surround yourself with people that have different skill sets, you really go further than if you just get in the same group with the same people. And and one of the things I love in the film is when Pat says, I have, a, I have an idea of a piece of art I want to take on a trail. And Jerry says, how much does it weigh? He's the engineer. He's always the engineer. <laughs> I remember that. That's That's wonderful. Yeah. So the movie also contains interviews with much-loved luminaries, such as the late Alan Bean, who was also a greatly renowned artist uh, following his NASA career. So what are you, are some of your favorite interviews from the movie? And were there not any that weren't used that you liked that may be perhaps in an extended director's cut? I, I get asked that a lot. And, and I always tell people, find your favorite movie and watch the director's cut and you'll see why. I edited it the way I did. <laughs> Although uh, I think the people from Space Hipsters and the people who are listening to this podcast would love a long version because we were the uh, the last people to really interview Al Bean wow. uh, before he passed away at length. Al Bean would not do long interviews, but he did it for Jerry. And Al Bean's interview was unreal. Every second he was on camera, he was alive and the stories were amazing. And 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 you can see that in the film. Gene Kranz is a true American hero, and he actually is who you think he is. And sitting with Kranz and having him cheer up about Apollo 1 and wiping tears away 50-some-odd years later, and he's still uh, emotional about it, is so powerful. And then when Frank Borman said he would speak to me, it was um, February of 2017, he said, I will speak to you. And I said to Barb, I've got to go out there now. And I was teaching and I didn't miss any school for the interviews. And she goes, you do not want to go to Billings, Montana in the middle of winter. And I said, the commander said he's going to speak to me. I'm going out there as <laughs> soon as I can. And I flew out a few weeks later and had to cross over from Bozeman to Billings, which was like ice road truckers, nightmare I don't ever remember seeing a road. And then to sit with Frank Borman, I could do that with every person in the film. The last thing I told Jerry was that I thanked him for letting me be along for the ride. Because as much as this film 
you know, means to people. Oh, and that was the other point I want to make about the film. I can say things about it because it's like our children, you know, when they get older, you don't take credit for what they're doing at that time and you can admire them, you know, when they're baby, it's my baby, my baby. But now it's out there and I've watched people respond to it and um, I feel the same way. Only I got to sit in the room with those people and I was the one who got more out of the film than anybody. Yeah, just just jumping in there. I think some people would be surprised that you just mentioned 2017 there as a date. You know, we're now at 2023. How, how long did it take to put all this together? When did it start? And, and how long is the process of making a film like this? Well, for a really talented people, it's much quicker. Um, <laughs> I was teaching high school. I was coaching basketball. I was raising my two kids. It was Pat's 90th birthday in Arkansas. And Barb and I had gone down to celebrate it with her and just be there for Pat and Jerry. And on the way home, I said, someone should make a documentary about these two people. They're like Forrest Gump. They keep showing up everywhere and major moments of history. And my wife said, well, you should. And that began six years of traveling the country, editing. The only person who did the interviews and the editing was me. I was wow. the only one who touched all that. And I'm not saying that to brag. Uh, I would have loved to have had a crew. Uh, but uh, the budget was no budget. So that's a great question. I allowed my students, at the time I was teaching a course, it was a beautiful way for the students to see how you grow through failure, the mistakes you make, and the joy that I was having by pursuing something that I loved, never thinking I would be on your amazing podcast, never thinking that the film would be screened around the world. I, that was never the intention I wouldn't have even dreamed that as a goal. My goal was to go out there and bang away at this. I figured it would take two years. I was I was off by four or five years. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a labor of love, and I think that's important as well, isn't it? When when someone r really cares about something, in my opinion, it's always that little bit more special. I tell my students that there are two types of goals: there are outcome-based goals and performance-based goals. They roll their eyes because they've heard it so much. But outcome-based goals are you do something for the, you're going to get the job, you're going to get the gold medal, you're going to get a movie that gets the Academy Award. Performance-based are you're going to go out there and do those things because you love them, work hard at them, which will put you in a better position to get the outcome that you want. But I covered so much stuff in the film, I never could have dreamed that the film would ever be seen by anybody outside of my classroom. I, I honestly can say that. And that's not self-deprecating. I just didn't think I was qualified to make a film like this. So for the movie, you interviewed Jeff Carr, uh, one of Jerry's children. So the interesting thing about Jeff is he ended up going in the space business as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and what it was, you know, what it was like to interview Jeff, because he really started in the industry as a terrible tragedy started unfolding at NASA, and that's addressed in the movie. Yeah, I just find it fascinating when you, again, we talked earlier, you connect the dots looking backwards. You can't do that going forward. Jerry Carr started his career, and shortly after that, it was the Apollo 1 fire. Jeff Carr started his career in public relations, and he was working with Krista McAuliffe, teaching her the lessons that she was going to do on her flight. And of course, wow. the Challenger 
explosion occurred 19 years and one day difference from Jerry's personal tragedy. Jeff went on to do public relations uh, in NASA for many years and now works in, in Griffin Communications, where he's still working with the, the new modern space flights. So uh, Jeff is a person who is not only an, an incredible speaker, but he's able to articulate being the son of an astronaut and put that in context to also what's happening in space right now. So I loved the interviews with Jeff and there was so much that we talked about that couldn't go into the film because it dealt with the modern era of spaceflight. Do you think that Jerry should have had another flight to space or do you think that he was happy with one one and done or do you think he he, he was someone that, that should have gone on and got some space shuttle flights? Well, first of all, the time between Skylab and the shuttle, there was a significant time and a lot of them, Frank Borman was one of them, never wanted to be ex-astronauts or they had things they wanted to do and they moved on. And Jerry uh, worked with NASA, helping them design different things that needed to be done for the the International Space Station. The ideas of, you know, in Skylab, there was just no colors and the, the food, everything was stark. And he started to, they he let them understand the human aspects that needed to be done. Jerry was over one night. It was my 50th birthday. And my son Weston was here and he picked up Pat and Jerry. They lived down the road and he brought them to the party. He brought them home. He was driving them home and he looked out the window. There's a beautiful moon. And he said, uh, look at the moon, look at the moon. And he said this, and then he was running back to the party. He goes, dad, I drove Jerry and Pat home. And I said, look at the moon. And Jerry said, I could have walked on that. Wow. I said, you heard that? He goes, yeah. Because Jerry never... He was very military. They said, you're not going to walk on the moon, which he was supposed to. said, fine, here's your next mission. Fine. Yes, sir. Salute and, and move on. So my son, Weston, was the only one to hear him say something where I could have. Pat and Jerry always looked through the windshield. They never looked in the rearview mirror. And they were making art in their 80s and still thinking of the next thing they were going to do. So Jerry wasn't a person to look back and go, well, I didn't walk on the moon. But I thought that was an amazing moment when my son told me, I wish I had heard it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they were both very onward type people. <laughs> so where can we see the artist and the astronaut and what kind of events will the film be featured in? What can we, what can we expect to see? So right now we're traveling with the film. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful screening tour that we are on. We've been going to colleges. We've been going to museums. We've been uh, going to movie theaters. And then on February 8th, the 50th anniversary of his splashdown, which the entire media ignored, we're going to celebrate it by putting the film on Amazon and iTunes. It'll be on demand at that time. So... The short answer is we are getting screenings around the country to raise excitement for the film, and then it will be on, on demand February 8th on Amazon and iTunes. Fantastic. And, and when that happens, we will be sure to be pushing that everywhere for everyone to see. Uh, and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, telling us a bit about the process of making this movie. And we wish, as I said, we wish you all the best with it. Thank you so much. 
please leave us a review or share our podcast with your space-loving friends. This is the Space and Things Podcast. Okay, uh, well done, Emily. We managed to get through a whole interview about Skylab 4 Astronaut without mentioning the M word. Yes. So let's not do it. Let's not do it. Let's just not do it. But I'm impressed that we, we didn't do it. Yeah. Do you know the stat? The standout moment for me in that one of the standout moments was when he was talking about the idea of making a documentary and remembering that it has to be entertainment. Yeah, I think people forget that, don't they? Exactly. I, I've watched a few Netflix documentaries. I'm like, man, this is like watching paint dry. Man, like some of them are just really like dry. And I love documentaries. I'm I like nonfiction type stuff. Some of them are just not entertaining. This one, I'm a little biased because I'll be honest, you know, everybody knows I love Skylab, everything Skylab, but I did watch this one. I'm not going to try to spoil it too much for the people who haven't seen it, but what I love about it is it really brings together all the issues that were happening during the 60s in the United States because you have the civil rights issues. You have the issues with the women's movement and stuff like that where, you know, women were just fighting, you know, against their expectations put on them. And it's sort of juxtaposed with, you know, you've got this fighter jock who is at NASA and whose whose job is really trying to get to the moon. And they're very isolated from what's going on at that time. And it's kind of amazing how it over there's a lot of overlap, you know, of all the things that were going on during that era. And to me, it's very educational, especially for young people. I didn't live through that time. Uh, everything I know from that time is what I've read, basically. It is entertaining because the, the people in the movie are just wonderful. You know, you got Al Bean, who's just, I love hearing him talk. I mean, it's just wonderful. You got Jerry, you got Gene Kranz, you got a lot of the old guys. You got Pat, of course, who's just wonderful. And it's interesting to hear how her work sort of um, progresses over the decades as well. And sort of the things she was involved in and to bring to light as well. And, of course, Jeff Carr as well is cool when he shows up because he's he represents a different generation. But you feel like, and I could be taking this completely out of context. I hope I'm not. But you sort of feel like when, here's a minor spoiler from the movie. Jeff Carr kind of started at NASA around the time Challenger happened. And that was a, obviously was a huge tragedy that impacted everybody at NASA. And um, it's weird to see that sort of juxtaposed with the tragedy his dad underwent with Apollo 1 because that was another thing that really just shook NASA to its core. And it's kind of interesting to sort of put that together in a way. Like, they both sort of underwent this very cataclysmic thing at the beginning of their careers because Jerry just joined NASA by that point. So for me, it was like seeing old friends again because it's, I hate saying this, I feel like crying just saying it. A lot of these guys are gone. Um, And Jerry passed a few years ago quite suddenly. For me, it was like seeing, you know, a group of your old buddies get together and just talk. And I love that. I love that kind of stuff. It just tells stories. And not to underestimate Pat Music. She's the artist in this. And it's cool to get kind of a woman's perspective of that time and a woman's perspective on the space race, too. Because during the 60s, you know, there were a lot of I think arguments like, why are we doing the space program? You know, it's not benefiting society. And I think she can kind of answer to that, not just because she's married to an astronaut, but because 
she's an artist who worked in a lot of different media and she could sort of see the influence that technology could have on art and vice versa, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen this movie and I'm really looking forward to seeing it, especially after now having met Bill and spoken to Bill and seeing how passionate he is. As I said in the interview, when you know it's someone's passion, when you know there's a a personal connection to telling a story, I always feel like that makes it a little bit more special. Now, there is obviously a danger that he glosses over things, the, the bad times perhaps, but I, my understanding is that he hasn't done that. The other thing which I, I wanted to bring up, it really does feel like we're coming full circle here. It was episode two where we reported that Jerry had died. Yeah. So the fir- our first non-pre-prepared episode, we found we just found out that Jerry had died and it was a shock. And we spoke very briefly to Ed Gibson at that point to find out more. And you look at how many, as you said, you look at how many people we've lost since we've started doing this podcast from that era. And you see this documentary which has come out where work started from... 2015, 16, 17, those interviews in the early, now six years old, that you couldn't get now. You couldn't yeah. get those interviews with Alan Bean anymore. So we have to start really tre- treasuring these moments and these gems of interviews which come out of these people telling their story about what is an incredible part of our history, an incredible part of spaceflight history. And as I said in the interview, I love the fact that someone is teaching this to kids somewhere as well. Someone is teaching high school kids about spaceflight history and allowing them to get excited about it the way that you and I are, the way that the people who listen to this podcast are. We love it because it's amazing, because it's inspired us to do things. It's not necessarily inspired us to go to space, but it's inspired us to do things beyond what we probably would have done because we think big because we're inspired by it. And I think the kids can learn a lot from these people and from these missions and these stories. And the fact that we've still got a chance to try and get the first-person accounts of those stories that perhaps haven't been asked these questions before which is crazy but some of these people haven't been asked these questions before is so important oh yeah this has a potential to become an an really important document in the history of spaceflight i haven't seen it yet but i trust your opinion on this emily but you look at various books and films and documentaries and podcast interviews where they become important because that's someone telling the only time that that story has been told that way by the person there and that becomes a really important yeah it becomes a source for maybe future people who are maybe a hundred years from now they're looking for something and there's this interview you know where this person tells this story that may have not been told before or maybe they're telling it but they're giving you some new information attached to it that you haven't heard that kind of enriches it I'm sort of emotional because the movie was like that. It was like seeing old friends tell awesome stories. Even if they're old stories, you don't get sick of hearing them. Well, but, but that's that's a good point, though. But what's interesting about this one is, again, I've not seen it, but Alan Bean, when Alan Bean is interviewed, it's normally interviewed in the context of Apollo 12. Yeah, exactly. Not even necessarily interviewed in the context of Skylab. Yep. So anytime you get 
a, an opportunity to to see an interview with Alan Bean talking about Skylab and not even his mission, but someone he would have worked closely with who commanded one of the three missions of which there were only three commanders of Skylab missions, right? So yeah. a, a fellow Skylab commander talking about one of the other commanders. That is an interesting perspective, which we don't see often because no. Pete Conrad's hasn't been around for years and I've never found many interviews of him about Jerry Carr. Maybe they exist. But to actually have that on record is really important. Yeah. As you said, it becomes that source of that people looking back at America's first space station and wanting to know more about what happened and who those people were, who the nine people were that flew on that. We now have a very, very good 90-minute documentary according to Emily. Uh, but I, I'm sure it is. I do trust Emily. Um, we have a, 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 this documentary, which which will become, as you say, will become a source for people to be able to learn more about Jerry. Yes, Jerry does have his own book, but sometimes people need a more bite-sized thing, and then a documentary can be that avenue in, can't it? Exactly. And this is a little off topic, but about Alan Bean, I once said to him, as one does... I was once talking to him and I think I said to him, you know, you know, I know a lot of people come up to you and say, hey, I love the picture of you by Surveyor on the moon because that is an iconic photo. But um, my favorite photo of him is in the orbital workshop doing like gymnastic flips because he looks so thrilled because you can tell he has all this space and he just looks very happy. And he put his hand on my shoulder. It was like, nobody's ever said that before, but I did love doing that. That's one of my that was one of my favorite things. Nobody talks about that because nobody talks about Skylab. I think Bean and and his other crewmates and, of course, the rest of the Skylab crews, they felt very grateful that people were just starting to remember that again because for so many years, people just kind of skipped over that part of NASA because they hadn't gone to the moon. So it is really cool to have his perspective about Jerry Carr and the Skylab 4 mission, which I'm a little biased because that's my favorite mission that was such an important piece of space history. I mean, they basically learned how to live in space. Everything that's being done now on the ISS that will be done in the future in deep space or in the Lunar Gateway and all that, that just builds upon what Skylab did and what Skylab 4 did, especially because they were up there for a while and they really learned how you had to live up there and learned how you have to work up there, you know, to be effective. Yeah, we've had a lot of recognition about Skylab for the last 15 years or so but still i mean i don't think people appreciate that enough you know you still hear people say on certain forums oh yeah they just were using recycled apollo parts and then whatever it was kind of a joke and blah 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 you still hear that that it was such a valuable program like you know i've talked to people at johnson who worked at uh, bio the biomedical area and they were like they had so much data from skylab that they were like this was really important because we basically learned how the body reacts in space and we didn't really fully get a picture of that during the lunar missions because they weren't up very long they just came up went to the moon did whatever came back whereas skylab they had sort of a you know they had baseline and then they had records of how the body acted in space for the first time and nasa kept Mm -hmm. all that they didn't throw it out they kept it all i i think the astronaut the skylab astronauts while they were alive a lot of them have passed over the last decade i think the ones who are alive who saw that people appreciated it really were happy about it because they just they hadn't really seen that 
Okay, so as always, details will be in the show notes about Bill and about this documentary. Obviously, it's not out for on-demand viewing at the moment, but as soon as it is, we will let you know either on our social media platforms or we probably will mention it within this podcast as well. So keep your eyes out for that if you're interested and uh, check out the, the show notes on spaceandthingspodcast.com and the full interview will be up on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash spaceandthings. Do you ever forget that we're actually all travelling through space on a big spaceship? Me too. This is Space and Things. So, Emily, what has caught your eye in spaceflight in the last week? Okay, well, obviously, the latest uh, Starship, I missed seeing it live. I, I, I was exhausted. I was traveling, so I overslept. So I missed seeing it live. I saw it later, and it was pretty awesome. I noticed a lot of people having, um, I don't know how to put this, meltdowns on social media over it because it was not uh, a full success um the rocket did at some point come apart but this is why you test things Mm -hmm. this is the biggest heavy lift rocket in history like ever i thought it was freaking amazing it got as far as it did to see something that large do that i was like oh my god this is really it's really cool i think once that capability is perfected or gets to space, that's going to be just a huge, a, a huge game changer. I really do think that. I still believe, damn it. I, I think that's going to be a big deal in, in just changing um, everything, getting large mm-hmm. numbers of people to space, settle, you know, eventually having for all mankind esque type missions, which incidentally the new season has just begun. But I just think once that capability is is nailed down and they get it right, which I believe that will happen, we're just going to see stuff that's mind-blowing. So I still believe, I don't care what anyone else says, I, I still believe they're going to get it right. And just watching that to me was like, oh my God, this is, I can't believe I'm seeing this with my eyeballs. I really thought it was cool. And I saw a lot of meltdowns on social media, a lot of people freaking out like, oh, it's a, it's not a success. And blah, blah, and Elon's fanboys. Look, I'm not into Elon's fanboys as much as anybody else. I'm not a fan <laughs> of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I do believe SpaceX will have this success, and I believe they're going to get it right. Yeah. So that's all I've got to say about that. I, I remain positive. I mean, I mean me too. I, I have a very, I feel like I'm almost a centralist position on this in that I acknowledge some of the, the criticism um, and I think some of it's quite, yeah. some of it's quite valid as well. So agree. Oh, no, I I agree with you on that. I think some of it is is valid. Yeah, it was a, it was amazing to watch that thing get off the ground, and the hot staging was incredible. And some of the images and the videos we see of it in flight are beautiful. When when that first stage turned around and started heading back, I was emotional. I, I couldn't believe what yeah. I was watching. Oh my God, that's that's heading back to come and... I know it wasn't going to land, but they were going to... A controlled splash was the plan in the uh, in the Gulf of Mexico or whatever. But, but just knowing that that's where we're at, that's where we're going, is exciting. And they're kind of doing it. Yeah. There it is. And that to me is so, as you say, very inspiring. It's just amazing to watch. It's amazing to know that we're, we're living that future. The, the criticism I have, which I think is justified, is 
and and unfortunately it does i in my, it does land on elon in my opinion is that i think they had this idea uh, and they have used it and it's worked very well for me in the past of using what they call rapid iterative testing they don't mind things blowing up because they say they learn from it and so on and so forth and yeah it's, and it, they've got a lot of them yeah and and it worked well for for them when they got started and so on and so forth I think yeah. when you're building something this big and with when you've got as much eyes on you as you now do and when you're also supposed to be meeting a NASA deadline for which they've put billions of pounds into this. Yep, that's the other side of the coin. I think you have to start thinking, is that the best approach? Not because I don't think it works. I think it does if they're allowed to do it again next week, which... I don't know if they will be. We've had an almost 11-month delay between the first launch and this one because the FAA grounded them because of the huge explosion of the first one and the damage to the pad. Now, why this one didn't damage the pad, that explosion at the first stage was huge and has an environmental impact, yeah. which the FAA are going to want to investigate. Yep. How long is that going to take? If it's another 11 months, then... Is this whole approach now just delaying things rather than doing things differently? It's just, I'm not sure that this is the best way. That's all I'm thinking now. That's a valid point. And I agree with you because the FAA isn't playing around. They do investigate incidences because that's their job. You know, that's what they do. They're not as well funded as as we would like them to be, to be able to investigate these things quickly. They're a government institution. Yeah. They don't have the resources that other institutions have. Exactly. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. SpaceX will do their own investigation on what went wrong and they need to because they're trying to get it right. So, of course, yeah. they're going to find out what's wrong probably fairly quickly because that's how the whole way they work. But if the FAA don't allow them to progress, then this this rapid iterative uh, testing model suddenly doesn't work. It, it It's not constructive in building something like this and and doing it to a deadline which we know they've got that's my issue with it and 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 i i think elon thinks he's he is god we've seen this behavior from him he thinks he's above everything i i I I was trying not to mention his name but yeah no because i was like i don't even want to get into this mess (laughs) which is you can't you can't not talk about it you know if if you if you have the ego the size that he's got, if you think everything you do mm-hmm. is wonderful and you have the budget that he's got to spend on this kind of yeah. stuff, you do what you want. And if you yeah. say, we're doing it and we're going to blow it up, and let's be honest, the, the explosion was spectacular of that first stage. It was yeah. incredible. It was. Arguably, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> you know? I No, I agree. And, and, and it's not that I'm now saying that this test wasn't a success because they said they wanted to get through hot staging, which they did. So that part did, of yeah. it is a success. If you're going down this method of, of testing like this, then this was a, a, a successful test flight. Is this approach actually the right approach? I don't. I don't know. It, and I, it boils down to that: if they're not allowed to now do it again within a month, within two months, when the hardware's sitting there, when they've already const- can probably done their own investigation yeah. on what went wrong, when they've already thinking about the next step, when NASA has deadlines, I yeah. agree because part of NASA Artemis, as we've discussed, is hinging on that, and it's not ready yet. Let's look at the fact that 
that, that when it, they started Starship and they did the little hops that we got really excited about almost as we started yeah. this podcast. They were doing those little hops. They happened fairly quickly after each other because in the grand scheme of things, when they went wrong, it wasn't as catastrophic as this. So the investigations, yeah. the FAA weren't necessarily getting involved, so on and so forth. So they got through those stages fairly quick. We went from a little hop to first Starship stage going up and not land. And then I think we had three attempts before it landed and didn't blow up. Yeah, and we were able to go through all of that almost within a, in the course of a few months, and that was amazing to see that rapid development, as the title suggests. Yeah. But then once you bring this booster in, and the FAA suddenly start coming in, and it, it's just not suddenly the pace doesn't seem to be there, and and therefore do we yeah. go go with the approach that that people moan about with other rocket companies that they use, or 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 do you carry on because in my head, and I'm not putting one company against another now, I almost feel like out of nowhere, Blue Origin are going to spring a surprise on us and the new Armstrong rocket's going to suddenly be ready in, yes. before Starship. <laughs> and I know that it doesn't have the same capability as Starship, but because they're doing it behind closed doors and because they're not using this this stuff, out of nowhere, it may suddenly be ready. It might not work, but it might might do. They may actually be having this covert thing, and because they're not doing it in the public eye, they may end up being the market leader in a few years. Who knows? But uh, I think, yeah, I think exactly what what he's doing fires up his fanboys because they love this kind of stuff. They love things blowing up. Yeah, they're the oh, kind they of love people that love blowing it. up. Yeah, they're, they're all they all love Jerry Brockheimer films and. Uh, <laughs> yes. and, and, and so do I. Was I was thinking so, that. I was like, they love that stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. They love that. And, and that's fine. But actually, now we're, we're talking about something which is so important. Uh, and it's not because I don't want it to succeed. I really do. In my opinion, Starship is the thing that's going to save humanity. And I, I don't say that with any sense of irony. I really do think it's such an important idea what they're trying to do. So I want it to succeed. And that's where this criticism comes from. It comes from the, the point of view of, I want this to succeed. I yeah. want it to be landing on the moon in the next couple of years, as they promised it would. I, I want it to be going to Mars yeah. in the next 15 years, as they promised it would. So so I, yeah. I don't like delays. I don't mind delays if it's for safety reasons and so, on, so forth. But I feel like this approach is causing delays rather than... The delays being as a result of them fixing things. And I think that's the difference. And I, I and that's what I've got to say on it. You have a lot of valid points. And I, I do agree with you because I was thinking that when when I saw the replay, I was just like, oh, God, they're, this is going to be delayed for like months, another bunch of months, because the FAA obviously has to do their job, which I respect that totally. I've done some stuff with the FAA in the past, and I, I respect them. I, they're an amazing organization, but they're a government organization, and they just don't have the resources that you know a huge corporation with limited dollars has. Mm. You know, it's like NASA; they don't have unlimited money. You know, and we'd like to think that. And people see, oh, they got a they got a budget of billions of dollars. That's not a lot of money when it comes to spaceflight. It just isn't. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but it's. I mean, that's not a lot when it comes to, you know, we're sending stuff in a deep space. One mission could be a bill, a few dollars. I mean, that's just reality. I can't wait till the book comes out someday. <laughs> I feel like it's going to be very, com it's going to be very complex and it's going to be a really good read because it's, it's going to capture, you know, all these personalities, 
sort of conflicts, I guess, how different agencies work with each other. That's going to be fascinating to me, On you know, because I love reading about kind of management stuff and it's going to be, I want to hear about that. Yeah, I can't wait till the, the history comes out about this because it's sort of like the among the first interactions between, you know, how commercial space flight does stuff versus how agency space flight does stuff. And uh, there's going to be a lot of juicy gossip in there, that's for sure. For sure. <laughs> so what, what, what else has caught your eye then? Sorry, because obviously that's the big one that we had kind of had to talk about. All right. Well, um, NASA just fired a freaking laser in space apparently <laughs> um this is <laughs> this is the uh speaking of agency space they are putting freaking lasers in space uh according to space.com uh a nasa laser and i'm reading this almost verbatim this is not my text a nasa laser just fired successfully in a deep space test on november 14th uh nasa picked up a laser signal fired from an instrument on the psyche spacecraft which is currently 10 million miles uh which is 16 million kilometers from earth this is actually a test it was a the first successful test of nasa's deep space optical communications dsoc system which uh space.com describes as a next generation comms link that sends information not by radio waves but instead by laser light uh, so it's part of a series, apparently, of tests that NASA is doing to speed up communications in deep space. So that's really uh, fascinating. And according to the article, and this again is verbatim, I did not write this. Uh, the test began at California at JPL's Table Mountain facility in the hills outside of Los Angeles. Engineers switched on an uplink beacon, which is a near-infrared laser pointed in Psyche's direction, and about 50 seconds later, a transceiver on Psyche received the layer and relayed its own laser signal back to Palomar Observatory near San Diego. This is just fascinating to me that we're able to do this kind of thing in space to to better deal with communications in deep space, because I think as humanity... Oh, God, here I go into my the high frontier lecture... I think as humanity gets further and further out into deep space, we're going to have to have better ways to communicate out there. Because to me, I'm like waiting on uh, communications for minutes at a time. That's going to be agonizing. There's got to be a way to to expedite things somehow. And I I think it's cool that they're investigating this. Uh, Again, if you watched For All Mankind, there's a I'm not going to do any spoilers, but yeah, of some of the Mars scenes where they have a communication delay, I, I'm like, oh God, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's too stressful for me. Then also freaking laser beams, man. <laughs> freaking lasers in space. That's it. That's all. I mean, just freaking lasers. That's that. That's the whole headline to me is freaking laser beams in space, man. Why was that not the headline of the article? Instead, I know. Instead, I, instead they went with NASA's psych, psyche spacecraft just fired a laser 10 million miles away in deep space. Well, it should just be like freaking yeah. lasers in space. Like, I mean, it's a good headline, but it could have been better. Exactly. Yeah. I I personally would have. Uh, I'm sorry. The writer is very good. I'm it's not a great just the writer, but yeah, yeah that a was a article. missed missed opportunity there. I would have just put that for me. The headline would have been just freaking lasers in space, and it would have been like what? Like that would have been just the headline, and that that's it. That's why that's why I don't write for space.com because uh, I'd get fired. So, but no, seriously, that that's the that that to me was the real title of that article. Freaking lasers. Anyway, 
So, uh, Dave, what has caught your eye in spaceflight this week? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a few things from the last few weeks. Number one, congratulations to Andy Saunders for winning the Space Tipsers Book Prize for last year. Uh, yes, with Apollo Remasters Mastered. We've talked about that book a hell of a lot. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful, yes. wonderful resource and wonderful book. Something that every spaceflight nerd or fan or whatever you want to call yourself snerd uh should absolutely own uh, snerd it, it's a it's a really really great book so nice one andy for that also in the announcement of that book prize the there's a new fundraising patch in space hipsters which is currently on sale yes uh, and i will put a link to information about that in the show notes because it's pretty cool do you want to say anything about that yeah, um, Chris Bain, who's one of the cover artists in Space Hipsters, and he also, he does a lot of other things for us, which is just incredible. He does a lot of art for us, um, but he he and John Harrington collaborated on this patch. It actually took quite a while. It wasn't like an overnight thing. Uh, I think it took, I want to say, almost two years to even put this initiative together. So that's kind of what was going on behind the scenes, but... Uh, it's a gorgeous patch. Um, it, it draws a lot on Harrington's. Uh, he is a uh, Chickasaw uh, Native American. It draws a lot on his heritage, um, and obviously, it benefits taking up space, which uh, benefits Native American uh, students who want to go to space camp. Uh, space camp is not cheap. Uh, you have to have lodging there and things like that. So we want that all paid for for the kids. We don't want them to get there and you know there's a you know, some issue or something like that. So the funds all 100% go to that. I'm not trying to, <laughs> I don't like advertising. Uh, I'm not a great marketer, but if you can get this patch, I think we have several versions of it. One is, the top one is 75 and then there's a $50 version. I think there's a $25 version as well. They're beautiful. Like I said, it draws heavily on his uh, Native American heritage. I believe he was the first Native American astronaut if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, I do think Bill Pogue had some uh, Choctaw heritage, oh, but I hey. think Harrington is the first. I believe Harrington is the first one who's officially, you know, has that heritage that it's just incredible. And like I said, it goes to a great cause. If you, yeah, I, I'm not trying to. It's a good item for a good cause. So I don't think you have to worry exactly. about. Um, good quality yeah. too. Uh, yeah, I, I've got one of the previous ones. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we obviously we spoke to Serena, the the founder of Taking Up Space, in a previous episode as well. So uh, check that out if you haven't already to find out more. Yes. So another thing that caught my eye, which I think is, it's kind of a little bit of fun, but also a bit of a nightmare, is one of the astronauts dropped a tool bag during a spacewalk. Oh no! And uh, apparently you can see it floating around with binoculars. Oh god! No. So it must be quite a big tool bag. But it became untethered and floated away from the ISS. So, unfortunately, a new bit of space junk, which is Bruce obviously Smith tool never bag. Good. Bruce, Bruce Smith tool bag. <laughs> oh dear! It's, I'm oh, so yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm te- <laughs> I'd like to apologize to his family because um, <laughs> they're just gonna be like, "Look, don't talk to us ever again, man. You're a dork. Like, you're just not even cool. Don't talk. Don't talk to none of us, man. You suck." <laughs> Bruce McToolbag, because he's untethered, man. Oh, my God. He's untethered. He's untethered. That's really tickled me. I don't know why. Full circle. Full circle from the start of the episode. From the beginning of the episode. Yeah. I don't know why that tickled the hell out of me when I saw that. I was like, oh, my God. 
he's in Christmas oh, lights. Like, do you think he thought in 1984 he'd be, like they'd be like putting him in lights like that? Like, no. I just think that's funny as hell. Like, I don't know why yeah. that just tickled me. I don't know why I was like, oh my god, there he is, there he is. I can't, yeah. we can't get away from. Him. Yeah. So we got Bruce McToolbag orbiting the Earth now, and you can see him <laughs> with binoc- your binoculars. He's untethered. <laughs> so yeah, he's not tethered to anything, y'all. He's a he's a satellite now. So, yeah. Amazing, amazing. So obviously, as Emily has, has said, For All Mankind has started up again. We've had two episodes yes. and they're out on, on Apple TV. That's always good fun. But if you have Apple TV and you're watching it, may I also recommend The Morning Show? The Morning Show is a wonderful yes. thing. It's also on its third season. And the first episode of the third season features a, la- a space launch. It's called The Carmen Line and they go on a space rocket, which is very similar to Blue Origin's New Shepherd, and that becomes part of the narrative is that this news reporter going on a suborbital space flight, which I think is a really cool idea because obviously it's very, very similar to what we've seen in real life uh, with New Shepherd. So, yeah, maybe check that out. It's, it's got uh, Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston, and it's it's really great. It's, amongst it is others, really it's good. a really good cast, but those they're, they're the two main, main people. So I thoroughly recommend that as well. Yes. This podcast flies on the generosity of our members. To help out, you can sign up at patreon.com slash space of things. Okay, that's a wrap for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope you'll be around next week too. Thanks to all those who continue to support us by being part of our Patreon community. You're all absolute heroes to us, so thank you very much. If you're listening and you'd like to be part of it, check out patreon.com forward slash space and things. And of course, thanks to those who share the podcast with your friends and family too. That really means a lot to us. We'll be back next week. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meme. I'm still not over Bruce. <laughs> Thank you for listening. New episodes every Thursday. This has been the Space and Things Podcast.